Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Berasli. Cautious, trustworthy, powerful, pragmatic, and seemingly always in control. This is the Angela Merkel the world has seen over the last 16 years. As German Chancellor, Merkel has been a pillar of Europe and the world order. The New York Times, The Guardian, The Economist all describe the Chancellor as the last remaining world leader of stature to defend, quote unquote, the West's liberal values. In power for over a decade, German Chancellor Angela Merkel is widely seen as a rock of stability, respected abroad and supported at home. She has been at the epicenter of multiple crises and problems in the world which is tackled against the grain of public opinion, both in Germany and in the rest of Europe. But Merkel's record is hardly uncontroversial. Angela Merkel's visit to Greece is expected to stir up widespread resentment with fears of large-scale violence. On the eve of her visit, a taste of the welcome that awaits Angela Merkel in Athens. Left-wing protests took place not far from the barricaded visit, showing that anger over painful austerity measures championed by Merkel was still rife. As Merkel prepares to leave office, Germany, Europe and the world are entering a new, more uncertain phase, one that will be shaped significantly by Merkel's legacy. But what is that legacy? And after Merkel is gone, what path will her successor chart for the future of Germany and Europe? Hi, Constanza. I am Here to help us answer these questions is Constanza Steltzenmuller. Constanza, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. When, when does one not like to pontificate? Constanza <laughs> holds the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations at the Brookings Institution. She joins us from Washington, D.C. Constanza, I want to start by looking at Chancellor Angela Merkel's rise to power in 2005. How did her selection break the mold of German leadership since World War II? Well, I think that on the one hand, the, the path that she chose was traditional in that she worked her way up from insignificant jobs to more significant jobs, uh, which in German party politics is still quite important. But on the other hand, I think what was revolutionary about it was that, A, she was female, right? I mean, since when, you know, do women get to have power jobs? In 2005, that was an outrage. Um, and I'm only half joking here. And there was, I would say, at least half a dozen male pretenders who had also worked their way up and who had built deep networks, who had roots in the regional and local structures of the party, which for the conservatives it was particularly important, and who, well, as a contemporary of some of them, I will say, exuded a certain sense of entitlement. And I think that what Angela Merkel was able to utilize was low expectations of a woman from the East with no sense of entitlement and no real rooted local and regional network, and who was proposing to be a candidate on the basis of merit and intelligence. And I think people underrated that. Germany was definitely in need of change. When Merkel took office, the country's economic growth had been among the lowest in the Eurozone for years. 
It is a challenge that has been staring German leaders in the face for a long time for a number of reasons. Lackluster GDP growth over the last five years, a vast overburdened welfare state, an anemic service sector, stubborn protectionist sentiment, and an aging population that will place greater strain on the nation's budget in years to come. But under her leadership, things started to shift. We've come to Germany to find out why it's doing so much better than its European partners. Surveys show that citizens and businesses alike are in the kind of upbeat mood that Germany has not enjoyed in years. We Germans have 1% of the labor force of the world and we have 10% of the exports of the world. That gives you an idea how successful and how oriented towards international markets we are. Since 2005, Germany's economy has grown by over a third. Today, Germans are 20% better off on average than they were when Merkel came to power. Constanza, in the 16 years Merkel has been in office, Germany has been transformed from what people call the sick man of Europe into an economic superstar. How much credit does she deserve for this? Here I have to say her predecessor government, which was the red-green government of Gerhard Schröder and Joschka Fischer, does deserve some credit for this. He did liberalize the German labor market in ways that paved the way, opened the way for the German economic recovery. He deregulated it, and that, I think, sowed the seeds for something that Angela Merkel's government then reaped. I would also say that Angela Merkel herself clearly wanted to campaign as an economic liberalizer. In fact, she gave a flaming economic liberalism speech at a party meeting in Leipzig, I think in 2003 or thereabouts, which very nearly cost her the candidature for the top job. There was a huge amount of backlash. Conservatives in Germany are actually quite regulatory-minded. And... She had to backpedal. She ditched a um, an advisor who had suggested that she do a fairly drastic tax reform in Germany and walked all that back. And that's how she, let's not forget, she squeaked in in 2005. But I'm, the reason I'm telling you this story is, is that her economic liberalism very nearly cost her the path to the chancellorship. Merkel may not have been responsible for transforming the economy, but she did change German politics. She's liberalized her party, the Christian Democratic Union, and pushed it towards the political center. Chancellor Angela Merkel is in the spotlight. Uh, she's been talking about gay marriage, and it seems that her previous resistance to it is softening. German lawmakers voted to legalize gay marriage today. The bill gives same-sex couples in Germany full marital rights and lets them allows them to adopt children. Germany has announced it'll close all of its nuclear power stations within 10 years. And that decision followed hours of negotiations among members of Chancellor Angela Merkel's coalition government. She's also marginalized her coalition partners by co-opting some of their most popular positions, like tax benefits for parents and a national minimum wage. Critics say this political reshuffling created an opening for the resurgence of the far-right alternative for Deutschland. 
Angela Merkel has been re-elected for a fourth term, but it's a hollow victory given the pummeling that she and her former coalition partners received and the success of the far-right nationalist Alternative for Germany party. Voters gave that Eurosceptic party its first seats in the Bundestag. The AFD, or Alternative for Germany, has only existed for three years, but in that time it's attracted lots of support for its anti-migrant, anti-establishment, Eurosceptic views. The AFD's recent electoral success is often linked to Merkel's controversial decision in 2015 to open Germany's borders to hundreds of thousands of refugees. Overseas now to Europe's refugee crisis. Tonight, the human toll mounting. They've traveled by sea and by land to escape war and poverty in the Middle East and North Africa. The only way we can overcome this challenge is through common European solidarity. But Constanza says that the 2015 migration crisis was just one of many developments on which the far right capitalized. It's forgotten that Germany had a net immigration between 1988 and 1993 of 3.7 million people. The dissolution of the Soviet Union, the fall of the wall, the end of the Warsaw Pact, led to an extraordinary population movement in Europe. Oh, and add to that the Yugoslav Wars. Add to that the significant political, social and economic shock of reunification and the really quite extraordinary surges of xenophobic and right-wing violence in the years after reunification that were written about but were treated as singular instances, but that research now, including autobiographical writing by East Germans, is identifying as part of a much larger phenomenon. So I think what you need to understand is that in Germany, and particularly in East Germany, which saw almost no refugees arrive in 2015. There is a, I think, a 30-year reverberation of social and political shocks um, that weren't fully digested. That's a really important thing to keep in mind. Secondly, the rise of the AFD has another proximate cause, which is that, that Angela Merkel, for, I think, reasons both of strategy and personal conviction, triangulated the CDU towards the middle of the political spectrum. She felt it needed to be liberalized, taking a leaf out of both Bill Clinton in the 1990s and Tony Blair. They did exactly that with the Democrats and with the Labour Party in order to stabilize their hold on power. And that's what Angela Merkel did. Now, the CDU was, was definitely in need of some liberalization. It had some, you know, antediluvian positions on a lot of things, from gay marriage to... Uh, making it easier for women to work and so on, which were embraced when, when, when this was liberalized. This was embraced with, a, with gusto by a lot of the base. The unintended consequence of this, I think that was not taken into account, was that this left uncovered the, the hard right wing of the political spectrum. And previous conservative chancellor, chancellors, including Helmut Kohl, her, her pre-predecessor, had taken great care to always make sure that these elements of the spectrum were paid attention to, were covered. And that left a vacuum for the populace and the AFD to flow into. So all of this is, is part of a much larger development in German and European politics. And why did people turn sour on, on the refugee crisis after welcoming it? Because one, Germans like to think well of themselves. And Germans thought they were doing something wonderful and humanitarian, and indeed, I think they were. 
it's forgotten now how civil society in Germany really rolled up its sleeves and went to work when folks realized that you know state institutions, local and regional institutions were 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 sort of buckling under the strain. But but what made people angry was was this sense that the you know institutions of the state, which Germans like to work, were taking far too long to get a grip. And that I think makes Germans nervous. And finally, let's not forget that by 2015 and 2016, you know, there were troll armies inside Germany and outside of Germany who played a significant role on social media to hype up um, feelings of, of discord and amplify those and make it seem as though whatever um, German government institutions, mainstream parties were doing was a total failure. Despite tensions at home, Merkel's open-door policy helped to position Germany as a moral leader in the European Union. What's happening with respect to her position on refugees here in Europe? She is on the right side of history on this. She is a true moral voice, not only of Europe, but in this world. But Merkel never set out to lead Europe. In fact, she had previously resisted that role, even when the Eurozone was drowning in crises. Europe's debt crisis has worsened. Ireland has joined Portugal and Greece as the third Eurozone nation to have its credit rating downgraded to junk status. It's feared the large European economies of Spain and Italy may soon also require bailouts. The move came after a day of turmoil on the markets as Eurozone finance ministers opened the door to a possible Greek default. At the height of the euro crisis, Merkel opposed debt forgiveness for Greece and hamstrung efforts to coordinate banking rules and public spending across the bloc. She also refused to support EU bailouts unless recipients were required to slash spending. This had devastating consequences for ordinary people in the affected countries. A wave of anti-austerity demonstrations is expected all over Europe, with tens of thousands set to march on Brussels. The protests in Europe reflect the impact and pain of austerity measures around the Union. I don't think they can take any more, and I think it's the wrong recipe, that's why. But Constanza points out that Merkel's options were significantly constrained. It's important to forget that the chancellor in a par parliamentary democracy has less power than a president. And that Germany, while it is economically the most powerful nation in Europe, doesn't effectively call the shots in Europe. So why do I say that? For one, because there were significant forces in Merkel's own party, the Conservatives, including her finance minister Wolfgang Schäuble, were suggesting, for example, that the Greeks um, be thrown out of the Eurozone. In other words, who were suggesting something much harsher. And as it happens, there was a significant groundswell in Europe which agreed with that, um, what we now call the frugal four or five. So the Dutch, the Nordics, the Baltic states. And what Merkel was actually doing, and again, that wasn't sort of really seen here, was standing her ground and saying, over my dead body, will we throw the Greeks out of the Eurozone? That's not going to happen with me as chancellor. I mean, I, I agree that the um, conditions imposed on Greece were harsh, but I would also point out that the Greeks used the crisis to engage in the kinds of structural reform that you can only do in a serious crisis. 
and that they've come out of it in a stronger and more effective place. The Greek recovery, like the Portuguese recovery, is actually quite impressive. And it's arguably because they made some changes that they needed to make, including on, on issues like people not paying taxes, which essentially means that the state is starved of revenue and, and can't fund its own, its, own, its own activities. Again, I thought that the kind of rhetoric which was coming out of Germany, the kind of rhetoric which, which was coming about out of German mass media was shameful and embarrassing. But the reality is a little more complex than, than Germany is sort of cracking a whip over Greece. We'll be right back. We know you've been alarmed and exhausted by the turmoil of the past year in the United States and all over the world. We saw outright lies fuel doubt in our elections and spark an insurrection. We saw international leaders like the U.S. and the U.K. screw up their response to the global pandemic. And we're seeing strongman tactics threaten democratic institutions in countries like Brazil, India, and Hungary. At the same time, people have mobilized like never before to defend democracy, promote civil rights, and address the climate crisis. Does this fill you with a mix of anxiety and hope? There's a new podcast from the University of Virginia that's helping listeners to make sense of it all. It's called Democracy in Danger. Each week, hosts Will Hitchcock and Siva Vadianathan unpack the threats facing democracy and ask what we can do about it. They cover topics like successful protest movement with legendary activist Sergei Popovich, the radical idea of degrowing the economy with anthropologist Jason Hickel, and the terror of cyber-stalking with MacArthur Fellow Danielle Citron. Visit dendanger.org for more and subscribe to Democracy in Danger on any podcast app. So despite the constraints Merkel faced, the euro crisis did in fact help clarify Germany's leadership position in Europe. And Merkel often used that position to strengthen the EU. She lobbied hard to avoid a costly no-deal Brexit. And last year, she was very central to pushing through a pandemic rescue fund. How should we understand these developments? Do they mean we should expect to see continued progress towards integration? Uh, no, I don't think so, actually. Or, or rather, I think that that's um, in dispute currently for a variety of reasons. The European Recovery Fund is not an act of European integration. It's a crisis management measure. It could be perhaps seen as a precedent for similar actions and further crises. And, you know, based on, on past precedent, I think we have to assume that crises are, are becoming the new normal. But I think the Germans and I would say at least a third of the European member states would fiercely resist a, an institutionalization of the mutualization of debt. That is just not what a lot of the European member states want, and that includes the Nordics and the Eastern Europeans. So I think it's important not to overread the European recovery program. But there are, two, there are two issues on which I think further integration might be possible. And one is banking union, where we're in a kind of halfway house that is in itself, I think, a risk factor in, in any future financial crisis. And the other is um, qualified majority voting. That is 
a direct result of the fact that the Hungarians like to veto stuff when Chinese interests are involved or Russian interests, and that that has watered down a lot of European reactions to bullying by Beijing, Moscow. And there, I think the impetus to, uh, to look at roots around unanimity, such as qualified majority vote, voting, is very real, including in Berlin. And it is, of course, allied to a, a deepening concern about the rule of law in member states like Hungary. The German foreign ministry is, is now creating a special task force to look at ways of implementing the new, um, harsher European rules on, um, on enforcing rule of law. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. But in, in, in general, I think that there is a sense that, that sort of treaty change level integration has run its course and that political divisions in Europe currently are such that member states' governments are, are well advised to, to try and sort Europe-wide problems out at, a, at an intergovernmental level rather than attempting treaty change. If the EU is to pursue further integration, it will need to clarify its foreign policy. Here, Merkel has often struck a delicate balance. On the one hand, she has spoken up about human rights violations and democratic ideals. At a meeting with President Xi Jinping, the Chancellor promoted an innovative bilateral partnership that would connect German-Sino trade deals with Chinese political reform, such as greater civil liberty. This was not the aspect of these talks that the Chinese president wanted to emphasize, but protests about human rights abuses are never far from the Beijing leadership, at least on its European tour. German leader Angela Merkel has signaled her exasperation with Russia over the Ukraine crisis. In a speech to the nation's parliament, she articulated a hardening of Berlin's stance to Moscow. On the other hand, Merkel has worked hard to satisfy German industry's appetite for Russian energy supplies. A series of gas pipelines running between Russia and Germany is at the center of an international dispute. It's called Nord Stream 2, and as its construction nears completion, there's mounting pressure to put a stop to this controversial project. She has also sought to expand access to Chinese export markets. The EU has shelved its efforts to win approval for a massive investment deal with China after tit-for-tat sanctions were imposed over Beijing's treatment of its Uyghur population. A Brussels and Beijing signed the CAI in December. It's meant to establish a framework for trade and investment in each other's markets. Merkel may soon find herself at the end of this tightrope. If you want to be fair, I think one has to point out that Merkel has been holding together the European sanctions consensus against Russia ever since 2014, and that German industry has paid a real price for that, and that she was the one who brought Navalny to Germany for treatment in Berlin, and that the Russians were really upset about that. But the, I think the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is the most egregious example of sort of trying to balance out industry interests and larger strategic concerns with Russia and the CAI or CAI, it's pronounced in different ways, the Chinese investment agreement between the EU and China, which was brokered by Merkel last, um, last year when the Germans had the EU presidency, 
both of those, I think, were attempts to balance out a, a hardening position vis-a-vis these authoritarian great powers. And I think both of those are, are political failures in that the, the damage to German interests and to Germany's values and to Germany's reputation is considerably larger than any possible benefit that might accrue therefrom. One of the most consequential elements of EU foreign policy is the transatlantic relationship. In recent years, Europe's closest ally has proven to be far less reliable than it once was. He challenged Europe to accept more responsibility. And following President Trump's first overseas trip, European leaders appear to have received that message. Angela Merkel, who expressed frustration during the G7 summit over the possible withdrawal of the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement, has now told a political rally that she thinks Germany and Europe can no longer count on the U.S. Now, Europeans are seeking to take greater responsibility for their own security. European strategic autonomy, I repeat, European strategic autonomy, these are not just words. The strategic independence of Europe is our new common project for this century. With Joe Biden in the White House, things are looking up for the transatlantic relationship. But that doesn't mean it will return to the old normal. So I want to shift to the transatlantic relationship. While relations with the U.S. suffered under Donald Trump, Joe Biden seems eager to get them back on track. But the world is changing very fast, and Merkel was among the first to say that Europe couldn't count on the U.S. like it had in the past. How will the transatlantic relationship be different in the future? The Europeans are, with good reason, concerned that Trumpism in America isn't over yet, that this the Biden administration is under huge pressure at home, and that there is an ongoing day-to-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute challenge to the authority and effectiveness of the Biden administration by a Republican part of the spectrum that seems increasingly illiberal and authoritarian in its tendencies. And so there is some hedging against that, I think, in the thinking of Europeans. Now, as far as I'm personally concerned, I think that's exactly the wrong conclusion to draw from this. Not because I think that we need to return to some mythical state where the Americans are our our protectors and we can stop investing in defense and spend our money on social peace, but because I think that in a world where the authoritarians are capable of interfering in our own political spaces the way that they have done and are doing, we really need each other to be able to get through this to the other side. It's highly unlikely that we're going to see a land-based war in, in Europe in the way that we were planning for during the Cold War, right? It's also completely true that if there is a military confrontation in Europe, if, if, if that happened after all, uh, we would be toast without the Americans. In any major military confrontation, we are the decorative add-on that adds military boutique capabilities and political legitimacy, but that's it. However, the real arena of confrontation between the authoritarians and the democracy these days is the information space, the trade space, and the regulatory space, where Europeans as member states, but also as the European Union, have significant assets to bring to bear that 
for America aren't just nice to have add-ons, but are in fact essential. Because we really do give America tremendous leverage if we stand side by side on these issues. And I do think the Biden administration has understood that. Conversely, I think we Europeans need to understand that if, if American democracy is challenged, then we stand to lose as well. Because that's going to be an encouragement for all the authoritarians in the world. What happens next depends significantly on who succeeds Merkel. Breaking news just coming in. Germany's conservative bloc has agreed on Armin Laschet to be its candidate for uh, chancellor in the country's upcoming elections this fall. Laschet was one of the few conservative politicians who supported Merkel's immigration policy. The father of three is staunchly pro-European and spent six years as an MEP in the European Parliament. Backed by the CDU's top brass, Laschet says he aspires to make the 2020s a decade of modernization for Germany. But even if the CDU wins the September election, Laschet might not be able to fill Merkel's shoes. He's really seen as uh, a male version of Merkel. But I think that that depiction is incorrect because it understates just how revolutionary Merkel was in some of the ways that she um, wielded power and the ways that she changed Germany. Whereas I, I think that Armin Laschet is a profoundly status quo oriented politician, which I think is, is, is his weakness. Certainly um, that is what he sounds like when he talks about foreign policy, where I think he's going to have a steep learning curve. I worry, and other people worry, I think, that he hasn't fully taken on board just how much Germany is suffering from half-digested shocks and incomplete transformations. That this is a country in need of modernization in many, many ways, beginning with stuff like digital infrastructure. We are living in truly extraordinary times, and I'm concerned that he might not have fully taken that on board yet. Merkel is clearly a very complex, often contradictory figure. So I'd love to end our conversation by trying to clarify her likely impact. Looking 10 or 20 years into the future, what do you predict will prove to be the most important element of her legacy? I think that we'll remember Merkel for having held Europe together when it mattered, for having stood up to the authoritarians when it mattered. I would have liked her to have been more critical, more energetic in the face of Chinese assertiveness. What we will miss is the extraordinary sort of steady, stable purposefulness that she brought to keeping the parts of an increasingly fragile machinery of Europe and of transatlantic relations and of the West together. I think what people really underrated was the experience, the sense of purpose, the steadiness that she brought to negotiations at summits and how, just how important that was. And I worry that the, the people who will come after her won't understand just how important that was and how effective it was. Constanza, thank you so much. Sure. You're very welcome. That was
was Constanza Stelzenmuller, the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations at the Brookings Institution. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching for at ProSyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.